Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. For decades, scientists have tried to find effective ways to treat Alzheimer's disease, with very little success. But that could be changing. New medications may help slow the progression of the disease, and new diagnostic tools could help predict who might need treatment before their symptoms even start. My name is Heidi Levitt, and my husband, Charlie Hess, was diagnosed with what we think is early onset Alzheimer's when he was 57 years old. It was in 2019. So his work is extremely particular in terms of details. And he probably was having trouble with the details for quite a while. Charlie's saying, I'm feeling foggy. And he's watched me navigate with my own mom when I've sent her to a geriatric psychiatrist to get another assessment on what's going on with her cognitively. And he says, maybe I should see that person too. And he goes in for this exam, which is like having an SAT and you're 10 years old and, and it's college level. Like, it's terrible. It's three hours long. And if you ask him, it was the worst day of his life. What the psychiatrist said to us was the test showed problems across the board on cognitive function, like you know, from from the point of view of being visual spatial to the point of view of vocabulary to comprehension to following story, like everything across the board was off. And I said, tell me what is going to happen. And she says, I think because he's young, it can be a lot more aggressive. And that in three years, cognitive abilities will hugely decline. She said it was bad and it was going to get worse and offered me little to no solace. Then I said, "Let we need to get scans and at least like confirm what's coming out on this exam. So we started with a, a study that was really more diagnostic study where we had to do a series of MRIs and we were able to get the amyloid PET scan to confirm the amyloid. So his symptoms started already where he was always feeling somewhat left out of a conversation, then became the executive function, having trouble making coffee. Now it's gotten to the point where he doesn't make the coffee at all. He can't turn on the TV. He can't get dressed by himself. I mean, everybody will say, oh, he looks great. He's taking great pictures because all he does every day is go out and take pictures and post it on his Instagram because he's an artist. You can't see this disease, right, easily until what you see in the media is end stages of people who don't recognize someone or are drooling. But you're not seeing the years of loss. So... It's not like you wake up the next morning and suddenly you can't do this. I think that's a very hard to understand the pace of this disease. I was offered a drug that they felt it's showing great improvement to take away the amyloid plaque, which will 
then lead to possibly preserving him longer. And I get a call saying, your name was on the list. And we really want you to tell us if you want to try this drug, because there's a waiting list of 20 people. And if you can tell me, yes, I can get you in it. And if you don't tell me by tomorrow, the spot is gone. I said to Charlie, do you want to do this? And he said, no, we don't know that it's really going to work. And we said, no. I was skeptical about this new drug because there was not enough data that corroborated that it was going to change the course of his disease or stop it. It's not like they're offering me a cure. It's not like somebody's saying, take this and it goes away. Nobody has said that. They're saying that this is going to help delay the disease progression. And if you look at the the numbers, it's not high enough to take that risk. I feel that there's so much pressure because there has been absolutely nothing out there to delay, to treat, to cure. Just offering people something on the off chance that it will work rather than finding something that works is selling hope. My name is Carol Balmer. My husband, Jim, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I started recording symptoms, things that I found unusual back in 2013, but it was not until 2017 that he was officially diagnosed. At that time, his condition was called mild cognitive dysfunction. Jim was doing peculiar things. He would lose his way to the shopping mall where we'd been hundreds of times and take the wrong turn. He would drive sometimes at 95 miles an hour on the interstate instead of the 75 that was allowed and not notice. He would miss the turn to our house, but then would catch it when he'd gone a block or so too far. These things began to be more and more troubling. And he had an event where he failed to recognize himself in a photograph just a couple days after the photograph had been taken. That troubled him and he told his physician about it. And the physician did a screening test Jim was eager from the very beginning to be part of this monoclonal antibody trial because it seemed so promising. We discussed the possibility of the side effects, but he didn't really care about the side effects. Or even if he died in the study, he said, you know, you got to die of something. It would be great if he got the benefit of this medication. But the main thing was that he could help others. Jim's enrolled in the Trailblazer 2 trial that's testing one of the monoclonal antibodies, donanumab, um, against placebo. So Jim's decline seemed very slow for a long time. And I hope it was from the drug, but maybe that was the pace of change that he was destined to have anyway. So because of the blinding, there's no way of knowing. 
Jim's functioning has declined quite a bit over the last several months. So Jim's short-term memory right now is non-existent. His memories go back in his early childhood, but not even his later childhood. We know that the next stages of this disease are terrible, but we're relieved and grateful and excited that he's had the best possible opportunity that exists right now for patients with Alzheimer's disease. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Kosick. He's co-director of the Neuroscience Research Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and also Dr. Risa Sperling. She's director of the Center for Alzheimer's Research and Treatment at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. So Dr. Sperling, I'd like to start with you. We've just heard from two families who have very different perspectives on the new monoclonal antibodies for Alzheimer's. What can you tell us about the status of these treatments? We now have two monoclonal antibodies that are targeting different forms of amyloid in the brain, and two phase three trials have been positive. One of those drugs is already approved, lecanemab, and one I think is likely to be approved over the next few months. We've had medications that have rid patients of amyloid without any result. So what's different here, Dr. Sperling? I think previous antibodies actually have not fully decreased amyloid sufficiently in the brain. There seems to be a relationship with how much amyloid do you lower and how quickly you do it and how many people you get down below some point. So I think number one is we've learned we have to be pretty aggressive with amyloid removal. Number two is that we're in earlier populations than we were before. And we've seen multiple times now that there's probably a point at which when there's a lot of tau in the brain, that I think it's less clear that amyloid therapeutics, in isolation anyway, are sufficient to really bend the curve. And then third, I'll say we haven't hit the home run yet. We can see very consistently across these trials that we can bend the curve with very aggressive amyloid if we start early enough. But of course, we all want to find a way that we really stop decline, where we ultimately keep people stable or one day make them better. So Dr. Kosick, how do you see these medications? Do you see them as a breakthrough? My feeling about these anti-amyloid drugs is that they have bent the curve. There's no doubt about that. I suppose if I had to sum up my feeling about this is how we want to calibrate our enthusiasm, because we really don't want to create false expectations. We have to make sure that our patients understand what's been accomplished here. And there's still a long ways to go. Patients have to think about taking these drugs that they're willing to come in for whether it's every month or every two weeks for an infusion or eventually a sub-Q injection, whether they are willing to tolerate the side effects which occur in some people, and whether or not the improvement 
that has been statistically demonstrated is going to actually have a, a sufficient impact on their lifestyle and their families to justify the investment in time and ultimately the investment in money. So what does moving the curve actually mean for patients? What it means for the patient, if we interpret the data literally, it means that they deviated from the control curve according to some neuropsychological tests. And what is hotly debated, do those changes in the neuropsychological parameters, are they discernible by family members? You know, if they are able to do things like spell world backwards or, you know, do some of the things that we measure neuropsychologically, is that going to translate into improved quality of life, lifestyle, all of that? And we just don't have those answers yet. And what about the significance in the realm of research? On the research side, there's no doubt that these medications have an effect on amyloid accumulation in the brain. And that's what part of the breakthrough is all about. And what about tau, which clearly has a role in this disease? Where does that fit in in this approach? We know that we all harbor some tangles in the brain, some neurofibrillary tangles. And with the deposition of amyloid, that pool of tangles gets released and begins to spread through the brain. And since tau tangles are a major driver of the disease, and we know from the second trial, the Dynamimab study, that the drug didn't have very much effect on the tau PET imaging, that we really have to be able to say that the impact of this has to be moderated because it only affected one portion of the disease. And you found in your genetic work clues that a lot of amyloid in the brain does not always translate into developing Alzheimer's disease. We do know from at least one patient, the woman who had the Christchurch variant with APOE, a mutation that will cause early onset Alzheimer's disease at age 45 or 50. She had a head full of amyloid, very few tangles, and did not have very much dementia. She did not have the disease. And when she had a tau PET scan, she had very minimal findings of the tau PET. So that's one case. It's a decoupling. But I do think we have to take that into our consideration here. So Dr. Sperling, what does this mean for the research if having amyloid in the brain doesn't always lead to Alzheimer's? So we've known for a long time that amyloid is necessary, but not sufficient to cause uh, Alzheimer's dementia. So what we've learned more recently is that in the setting of amyloid, tau begins to spread throughout the brain, and that is occurring as people start to develop symptoms. So the amyloid occasionally is there for more than a decade before you get this, where the tau suddenly explodes out of the deep parts of the brain in the medial temporal lobe and goes around the rest of the brain. And that's very commonly associated with a rapid cognitive decline. So I very much agree that you need both amyloid and tau to get to Alzheimer's dementia. The majority of people who have a lot of amyloid in their brain do show decline over time, and that is associated with tau spreading. And we don't fully understand that relationship. I'll even go so far as to say I'm not sure it's amyloid causing it, or whether there's an association between these, perhaps it's a process that's upstream of both amyloid and tau. You know, people 
have cholesterol building up for years and decades before they get a heart attack or a stroke. And many people with high cholesterol never have a stroke or a heart attack. And I think the same is true with amyloid. I think if you lower amyloid early enough, you are likely to affect tau, and I think that will help slow symptoms. So I think amyloid is a crucial player, but it's not the only player. And we're starting the first combination trial of amyloid and tau, where we will look at multiple tau therapies alone and in combination with amyloid, because just like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, when people have symptoms, you're going to need more than one approach. So that's what I want to talk about is this path. Some people say we've put our eggs in the anti-amyloid basket and we've taken oxygen out of the other research. Dr. Kosick, what other research do we need to do? We have uh, taken the approach of antibodies to the amyloid. That's been like close to 30 years or so. And I really do believe that for a large portion of that time, it was somewhat unfortunate that other directions were not given as much attention. That has changed. Where the NIH budget, if you look at the breakdown of that budget, there is a fair amount of funds going to projects that are not solely focused on a single hypothesis. Just as Risa said, we're probably going to need more than one drug. So what are those drugs going to be? And that's, I think, where the research direction is now going. So we think of Alzheimer's as a triad of conditions, the amyloid, the tau, and inflammation. The other two limbs of the triad are now getting much more attention. And I think that's where the next breakthroughs are going to come. Dr. Kosick, you work in genetics. Talk about some of the things that you've learned and how it might help us towards finding treatments. People that I've been interested in are those with early onset Alzheimer's that have uh, mutations leading to the disease. So I've always thought of that as a more pure form of Alzheimer's disease because they're getting it at a relatively young age. I really think that when people begin to get Alzheimer's well into their 80s and their 90s, there are many, many comorbidities, not the least of which is some vascular disease too. None of the therapies we're currently thinking about are addressing the comorbidities, copathologies actually. What we are also beginning to appreciate, these copathologies don't just exist in the oldest old, but there are even in the Alzheimer brain of younger people, even in the patients I study from very early onset that I always thought of as pure Alzheimer's, they will often have synuclein depositions and a protein that deposits in the brain that we usually associate with Parkinson's disease, but it shows up in Alzheimer's too for reasons we don't fully understand. They will also have some degree of vascular problems. So since our therapies are really targeted toward amyloid, there's a lot of the copathologies that are not being treated. And I think um, that is one area where we sort of fall short a little bit. And in my view, one of the things that has held us up a little in the Alzheimer's field is that we haven't paid enough attention to the underlying direct problem. The answer in cancer was a cell biological answer. We learned how cells proliferate. The question in Alzheimer's isn't why cells proliferate, but why they die. We don't know that. And that's a cell biological question. We need to learn how cells die 
And that's why I think a part of the delay here has been a not enough attention to the underlying fundamental cell biology of the problem. I want to switch gears to diagnosis and new tests coming online. How do we diagnose Alzheimer's? So I think we do now diagnose Alzheimer's disease as, at a minimum, the presence of amyloid, and that it's increasing certainty that it is Alzheimer's disease if we also have a marker of tau. The newest blood tests we have, which are actually markers of tau, tell us mostly about how much amyloid buildup there is in the brain, but they also tell us that the amyloid is bothering the tau. And some of these high accuracy measures of what we call phosphorylated tau, particularly P-tau-217, is a great marker of amyloid and a pretty good marker of tau. And I think tell us that the underlying pathology is Alzheimer's disease. I think the biomarkers have been a genuine advance. That is where we've really made some inroads. And the fluid biomarkers that Reese is talking about, potentially just around the corner, blood tests that measure phosphotau-217 and the microtubule binding region of tau look really, really interesting. What we have to learn is how to use them because exactly how much earlier are they going to predict How are they going to show us progression and dynamic range? There are so many interesting questions that are going to open the door for the use of these biomarkers. And that's where I think one of our biggest advances has been. So how do we diagnose early onset? How do we diagnose if people come in and they have amyloid in their brain, but they don't have any issues? How do we handle this? Well, I think that's when we should diagnose and treat Alzheimer's disease just like we do most other diseases where we find it in the asymptomatic stage. I think we have to risk stratify. It's not just do you have amyloid, it's how much. Because the more amyloid you have, the much more likely that you have some tau. And again, these blood tests can tell us whether the amyloid's bothering the tau So I envision that eventually we will be at a point where we will offer this as a blood test to everybody who's entering the age of risk in the same way we measure cholesterol. But we shouldn't do that until we know that treating at that stage of disease can really make a a difference. And that's what these clinical trials like the AHEAD study are really focused on. People who don't yet have symptoms do have amyloid buildup and early tau and trying to say, can we prevent uh, cognitive impairment and dementia? So there's concerns about these new blood tests. There's now at-home versions of these tests for Alzheimer's disease. How do we know how accurate they really are? There's no doubt that this has to be regulated. You know, having home tests that are just coming out from somebody who's a cowboy trying to make money from this is not the way to do it. They must be regulated, and if they are, we really have a great opportunity here. Because as Risa pointed out, the turning point here, the danger, is when the amyloid has deposited to the extent that the tau explosion occurs. Once the tau explosion occurs, then I think we have some problems on our hands and that the anti-amyloid drugs are not going to be as effective. And some of the people that may look like in these current trials, they're responding less well, may have already had a tau explosion. So I think if we are able to treat very, very early while the tau is still quiescent, then 
That's worth studying. And that's what the biomarkers promise us. Where are we now and where do we need to go, in your view? I think everybody would agree that there's more to Alzheimer's than amyloid and tau as well. You know, the inflammation side and um, the search for individuals who have mutations but escape the disease. Those pathways are really another way for us to learn about therapeutics. I think we have some very interesting clues that have come to light with the approval of these drugs. But I would say this is one more step in a very long process. Dr. Sperling? I think we have seen that lowering amyloid dramatically can bend the curve of decline. And there's two pathways from here for me. One is that we go earlier if we're going after amyloid because we want to go before there's tau spreading throughout the brain. I think that's very clear. And two, that if we're at a later stage of disease, we do amyloid and tau and trying to save the neurons, neuroprotection, inflammation, multiple avenues that would help the neurons be more resilient to the pathology. But I do think this is a really important moment where we can make a difference. It's not enough of a difference. And we have to be cautious that we're not there yet. But we also have to step back and say, it took us a quarter of a century to get here. How do we accelerate so it doesn't take us a quarter of a century to get the next breakthrough and make a bigger difference in people's lives? Thank you both so very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Kenneth Kosick is a professor of neuroscience at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And Dr. Risa Sperling is a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. We had help from Dr. Abby Schubach and our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Our engineer is Mike Toda. Next time, there are hundreds of thousands of transplant patients waiting to find an organ, and many will die waiting. Some doctors say animal organs are a viable substitute. But are we ready for human trials? We've demonstrated that the pig kidneys worked right away, made tons of urine, the serum creatinine dropped to normal and maintained that for seven days. And I can tell you as a transplanter, when a kidney performs that well out of the gate, you're looking good. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.